And the ability for a man to teach is the last requirement that we saw in chapter 1, verse 9. And that teaching is really has two parts to it. First, he must be able to exhort in sound doctrine, and he must be able to refute those who contradict sound doctrine. So now Paul transitions from what he expects an elder to be to what kind of responsibility he has to those who contradict sound doctrine. So in verses 10 through 16, Titus is going to to have to oppose some of these false teachers who have risen up from within their midst, perhaps have come from outside, but very likely have come from inside the Cretan congregation, and they were leading people away from the faith. And so Titus has the responsibility to, to contradict them or refute those who contradict this sound doctrine. And this is a pattern that all elders must, must follow, that, that we cannot allow someone who is teaching false doctrine or demanding some kind of lifestyle uh, that's outside of the Bible. Um, in, in doing so, it actually upsets the saints of Jesus Christ. And so we'll look at that tonight. Titus chapter 1. I'll begin reading in verses 10, uh, in verse 10, and we'll read down to verse 16. This is the word of God. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. In the last part of this chapter, Paul, I think the Holy Spirit wants us to see that people who actively disrupt the progress of the gospel must be silenced. People who actively disrupt the progress of the gospel must be silenced. And the responsibility to silence them uh, lays square on the shoulder of the elder, but, but also on the congregation to watch out for this kind of false teaching. People who actively disrupt the progress of the gospel must be silenced. So first, we want to look at the problem of disruptive leaders in verses 10 through 12. The problem of disruptive, or we could say destructive leaders. Why is it so ur- urgent that a godly elder must be appointed and that he must be able to teach. He must be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. That was the last thing we saw in verse 9. Why is that so important? And the answer comes in in the first word in verse 10. For. See how it's connected to what Paul was just saying about what he expects in elders. And the reason that this last qualification is so important that he must know what sound doctrine is be able to teach it and refute those who contradict it is because there are, notice verse 10, many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers. So he describes these 
disruptive teachers in three ways. Number one, rebellious. The idea of a rebel is someone who doesn't want to submit, right? Someone who disobeys God's law. Empty talkers are those who, whose talk have no value. Notice in verse 16, at the end of the verse, they are worthless for any good deed. So they, they have this flowery talk, but it's really emptiness. They're worthless for the sake of, of the progress of the gospel, for the work of Jesus Christ. And then deceivers. These teachers mislead other people in order to get what they want. And we're going to see that they're, what they're driven by here in the next few verses, but, but they deceive people. And apparently in verse 10, we learn that, that these teachers are especially causing problems among the Jews. And, and apparently their source is from the Jews, right? Notice the end of verse 10, especially those of the circumcision. So in their opposition to God, they, they're not denying everything that is true. And that's the, that's the genius. That's what really causes the, the false teachers to get a grip, to, to get a following, right? It's because they don't totally abandon all that is true. They take some truth and they mix it with some error and then they offer it as God's truth, right? They, they supposedly speak on behalf of God. And as a result, they, they actually abandon the gospel. And so instead of, instead of completely denying the truth as a whole, they actually cloak their empty, rebellious deceit in a robe of relig- religiosity, right? They're coming with this message that they're claiming to be a religious message, right? A, a Christian message even. And yet it's actually empty and against what God has called us to believe and do. They pretend to be concerned about spiritual things. They maybe require religious observances that, that is outside of Scripture and really what they're doing is not doing it in order for a person to become more spiritual or, or more accepted by God, but rather in order to advance their own agenda. And notice the kind of destruction that they cause in the second part of verse 11. They upset whole families, teaching things they should not teach. They're disrupting whole families with their false teachings. They propagate false doctrine. And apparently some of these families who had some foundation in the faith are actually becoming swayed by the teaching of these false teachers. They're teaching what they ought not to teach. And notice their, mo- their motive at the end of verse 11. What is it? Sordid gain or greed. Do you remember the qualifications for an elder? Um, let me find it here. At the end of verse 7, he must not be addicted to wine. He must not be pugnacious. He must not be fond of sordid gain. What's the problem here? If, if you have an elder... Who, who is driven by greed, if he's driven by a lust for money, then he will be willing to advance or, or to, to abandon the gospel. He'll be willing to, to teach whatever's necessary in order to get what he wants, which is the money. And apparently that's what these false teachers were doing here in verse 11. See, they weren't, they didn't fit the character qualities that were required of an elder, and as a result, they started to 
they, they already had become derailed, but they were starting to derail some of the other members, apparently, of the church. So Paul's saying, Titus, you need to, to be aware of these kind of people. Recognize their danger. They're upsetting whole families. They're teaching what they ought not to teach. And then, notice Paul's expectation for, for Titus with regard to them. He says, regarding these false teachers in verse 11, they must be silenced. If Titus allows the voice of a false teacher to be heard and to be spread, then his teaching will take root. And so we, we elders, need to, to guard against this false teaching by choking out that kind of voice. Not literally, okay, figuratively. But don't allow that kind of voice to be heard. It must be silenced. Pastors have a responsibility to keep false teachers from having a platform of propagating false doctrine. In 3.10, Paul's going to tell Titus to reject a factious man, a divisive man, after a first and second warning. But the point is that whatever the case, we cannot allow a false teacher to get a platform for propagating godlessness or propagating some kind of extra-biblical religiosity. In verse 12, we see the depravity of the false teachers. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. I guess i got a couple, a couple more slides there for you. All right? Their depravity, verse 12. Cretans are always liars. These false teachers are so steeped in their godlessness, in the godlessness of the culture. If we want to describe the people of Crete during the time of Paul while he was writing, we could describe them as a bunch of liars. Or we could describe, describe them the second way he does in verse 12, evil beasts or wild animals. Or the third way, which is lazy gluttons. And, and Paul's saying, listen, these kind of people can start to take root in the church and they can start to ad- adapt the culture's mindset and bring it into the church. It starts to seep over into the church so that what describes a godless culture is now something that could describe the church. Instead of being called out and being different from the world, these leaders are serving as a snapshot of what their society is. And in order to show this, Paul appeals to one of their own prophets. He says, one of your own prophets says this. Paul's saying, listen, you, your, your own person, your own citizen says this about you. Notice what he says in verse 13. This testimony is true. Now, most scholars see this statement as coming from one of their, their prophets, their philosophers named Epimenides from the 6th century, so 500 years prior to the writing of Paul. 6th century B.C., that is, is when Epimenides was around. And Paul's craftily 
helping the people in Colossae see that, that they, they have to admit that their own prophet is right with regard to their society. Because if you disagree with Paul, then you're disagreeing with your own prophet who says that this is true about you. In other words, it's commonplace in society, in the marketplace, to find people are just constantly lying, lazy gluttons, people are just wild, debauched. Paul's saying, that seems to describe some of these leaders. And he says, this testimony is true here in verse 13. He's rebuking these destructive teachers. Now let's think about what he's saying. Verse 12, he says, Cretans are always liars. He's quoting from their prophet, so Epimenides probably, but Cretans are always liars. And then what does Paul say about that? It's true. Now, how could that be true? How could Cretans always be liars? How could they, every time they speak, be telling a lie? I don't think that's the point that Paul is making. I don't, uh, uh, the point is not that every single person is like this, nor that every single, or even one person acts like that all the time. But what he's saying is, as a whole, your prophet is right. The society of Crete can be described by people who lie and are wicked and who are lazy. That's how they are known. And Paul probably knew that firsthand because he had been there. He was trying to make his way to Rome. He was actually a prisoner making his way to Caesar. And on the way to Rome, their ship could not go any farther for the winter. So they took, they, they docked there at the southeast corner of Crete. The winds were just too hard. And they stayed there for the winter. And even when they left, they, Paul told them they shouldn't have because it was too dangerous. But they left anyway. But Paul spent some time there. He spent several months on Crete. And so he knew the, he knew the people, didn't he? he? He had some interactions with them in some way. And as a result, he says Epimenides was not speaking literally, right? Every single person is always lying all the time. That's not what he was saying. That's not what Epimenides was saying. Instead, he was saying something like this. Hyperbole. Like, like we, we might say something like, um, I've told you a million times not to do that. Okay? We're, we're using hyperbole, and that's a, a proper form of speech that we can use in order to make a point. And, and that's, I think, what Epimenides was doing, and Paul's affirming his hyperbole. That is so prevalent. Okay, it's just, they, they do it so much that we could just say always. They always lie. And now what Paul's doing here is he's applying it to the false teachers. He's saying, see, this is what your philosopher said about you citizens, but what I'm saying is this is true about your destructive teachers. You disruptive teachers are just like your society. Notice what Paul expects Titus to do. We already saw in verse 11 that they must be silenced, but notice here in verse 13 he gives a formal command. He says, This testimony is true. For this reason, you, Titus, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. So how do I silence them, Paul? How do I keep them from getting a platform to speak? And the answer is to reprove them severely. This word reprove can also be translated as rebuke. It comes from the, the same Greek word that is used 16 other times in the New Testament. 
In every instance, the word has the idea of bringing something to the light, exposing what is true about someone. And usually it's not a good thing to be exposed. So let me show you in 1 Timothy chapter 5, back a couple chapters, a couple books from where you're at now. 1 Timothy 5. Paul's talking about how to handle some situations with elders, take care of them, he says in verses 17 and 18. Then verse 19, he says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, or reprove, the same word, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Now turn back to Titus 1.9, because there seems to be a twofold purpose of reproving them severely. The first purpose is to bring to the light the sin of the offender. We want, when we reprove someone, we want them to see their sin which they are blinded to, which is why they continue. Or they don't see uh, that it's that devaluing or it's that destructive to, to whole families. We want them to see their sin. So that's the first purpose. Um, let's see. Uh, verse 9, chapter 1 of Titus says... Um, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So we want to reprove them or re- rebuke them so that we can bring to the light their offense. We want them to see it for what it is. But it's also for the sake of the people watching. Did you notice that in 1 Timothy 5.20? He says, Rebuke in the presence of them all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. And isn't that what happens when there is a public rebuke? That we start to look at our own heart, right? How, how far away am I from turning away from God? How serious is my sin becoming? And Paul recognizes that it has this twofold effect. That when we rebuke someone in public, then it has an effect not only on the, the offender, but on all who are watching helps them to be able to guard against that kind of sin themselves. Now, it's hard to know which, which view Paul has in mind here. It seems to me that the first goal is primarily in view, that the teachers would see their falseness, the falseness of their teaching and change their thinking. Look at, look at verse 13 again. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. That they, the most, the nearest antecedent is the false teachers. So that they may be sound in the faith. So if they're believers and they're just teaching false things, then, then uh, use this rebuke, rebuke to, to bring them back to their soundness in faith. Change their thinking. The only problem with that view, and this is what I struggled with, this week as I was thinking about this is at the end of verse 16 or really the whole verse 16. They, these false teachers, profess to know God but by their deeds they deny Him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. So if that's true of these disruptive teachers then then maybe Paul's primary point is to rec- help the rest of the congregation know this is false teaching, not something to be followed. 
so whatever the case, Titus is supposed to instruct instruct them and expose the sin of their false teaching. And because the teaching was done in public, it should be exposed publicly. And he should do it in order to glorify God for the benefit of the congregation as a whole. So the problem of disruptive leaders, the rebuke of disruptive rebuke of disruptive leaders, and then finally the mindset of destructive or disruptive teachers. The mindset of disruptive leaders. Paul here in these verses shows the danger of letting the false teachers go unopposed. In verse 13, if you don't rebuke them, they're not going to be sound in the faith. They just go on teaching and thinking that what they're doing is okay. Here in verse 14, we see that if they go unimposed, they'll they'll continue to pay attention to these Jewish myths and man-made commandments. That's really what's at the heart of what they're teaching. Verse 14, not paying attention so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths. So in other words, that's what they're doing. If you rebuke them, then they'll stop paying attention to those Jewish myths and stop paying attention to the commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Apparently, this false teaching is some way, is in some way is tied to Jewish myths, some kind of Jewish rituals. Like if you wanted to be spiritual, if you want to be pleasing to God, you have to fulfill these, these ceremonial rites. He's saying, in addition to that, those Jewish myths that they're saying, we follow Jewish tradition in order to be pleasing to God. And Paul's saying, no, you don't. You follow the gospel. In addition to that, though, there were also these commandments. Paul's saying that they were obeying commandments. Now, how can that be a bad thing? Right? He's saying, if, if you reprove them, verse 13, then they'll stop paying attention to Jew, Jewish myths and they'll stop paying attention to the commandments of men. Now, why would commandments of men be a bad thing? And that's why I call these man-made commandments. These are extra-biblical commandments. That is, commandments that are set up as guardrails, maybe, to, to, to keep us from destruction, and they turn out to be a means of getting God's acceptance. The best example I can think of this is from Mark 7:11, the Pharisees. And they had, over time, adopted this Jewish tradition where if they wanted to dedicate their money or the resources to God, they would, they would declare those resources Corbin, set apart or sanctified, consecrated for God's purposes. So th- those resources, usually money, could not be used for anything else except for God. And Jesus says, you foolish Pharisees, you've adopted this Jewish tradition and yet you've, in doing so, you've bound yourself and kept yourself from being able to do what you need to do, which is to take care of your parents. Apparently their parents were getting older and needing some, some help, some financial aid, perhaps, for Social Security, right? And so... They're saying, well, all of our resources, we can't help. They're all Corbin. And Jesus says, you fools. See, the man-made commandments have actually gotten in the way of doing what God desires. And that's why Paul says, you need to rebuke these teachers severely because they've set up those kinds of commandments 
which are actually keeping them from doing what God really wants. For us, it might be a personal conviction that we have in order to keep us spotless from the world. And so we make up a rule that this is just a really bizarre out there. Hopefully you don't have this one, but I'm not going to interact with any unbelievers unless it's out of absolute necessity. I don't want to get spotted by the world. And so we build our little cocoon of Christians where we go to our Christian mechanic or a Christian lawyer and purchase insurance through a Christian and we don't let our, our kids play with other Christians. And then Christ commands us to take the gospel to the world and, and, and we fall flat on our face because we have set up a man-made commandment. I cannot interact with unbelievers. We can't obey what God really wants us to do. Obviously, there's, there's an extreme, right? Developing too close of relationships with unbelievers is a problem. Intimate relationships with unbelievers is not going to, to be a good thing. This is some kind of a family relationship. But, but, but that doesn't mean we just go to the other extreme and not interact with unbelievers at all. Do you see how we might set up some man-made commandments and keep ourselves from doing what God has called us to do? See, what these men were doing were make, what was making up their own rules. And then they were demanding others to live by them. That's legalism, isn't it? The danger of legalism. It's saying you have to do X, Y, and Z that's outside of the Bible in order to be pleasing to God. Right? You have to follow these Jewish traditions. You have to follow this list of commandments in order to be pleasing to God. Now, there's nothing wrong with making rules. There's nothing wrong with having personal convictions and setting up boundaries. But if those boundaries, if those guardrails that we set up actually keep us from doing something that God commands us to do, they've actually become detrimental to us. They've become a stumbling block, haven't they? And instead of trying to protect ourselves from danger, we've actually put ourselves into danger. You see, we can become legalistic when we think that godliness is equated with checking boxes off of a list of man-made rules. And as a result, we, we look at our boxes and see how we did. And if we, if we match up, if we have enough boxes checked, then we convince ourselves that we're okay spiritually. And before long we subtly shift our confidence from Jesus Christ, who is the only hope of our salvation and what He did, to how we did on our boxes. That's legalism. And in the process, we can actually convince other people to do the same and do what these false teachers did, which is upset whole families and keep ourselves from being able to fulfill what God expects of us. I mean, think about this for a second. Have you ever met a serious-minded believer? A serious-minded believer. He, he was dead set on getting things right. And so he set up a, a specific set of standards, but was far from godly. You knew him. You knew his life or her life. That's the Pharisees. Right? They looked really godly on the outside because they had their 
checklist of things that they needed to do in order to be accepted by God, but really it was cloaking their rotted hearts. They felt that as long as they did these things, God would accept them. So what Paul says is those kind of people cannot go on not only following those man-made commandments, but teaching other people to do the same. And so, Titus, you need to rebuke them. Give them an opportunity to turn back to the truth. Paul now shows in verses 15 and 16 that the mindset of the offender is either faith-filled or unbelieving. He says in verse 15, To the pure, all things are pure. The wise believer knows that serving God is not about externals primarily. That was the problem of these men of the circumcision. They were claiming that a right relationship with God was determined by Jewish laws. Food laws, I'm obeying food laws, circumcision, all those things. That's how I have a right relationship with God. The reason that that's such a problem is because that is the reason that pursuing external conformity or external change only the reason I think that's a bad thing is because of what Jesus said in Luke 11:41. he said you foolish Pharisees it's not about cleaning the outside of the cup it's about cleaning the inside when the inside's clean all things are clean if you just clean the outside you haven't done anything In Mark's Gospel, in chapter 7, verses 14 to 19, he talks about um, those things that are pure. He says, It's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, but what comes out of his heart. And there he's talking about food laws. So that's why I think this problem here in Crete is that these teachers are, are demanding these kind of Jewish food laws. If you're going to be right with God, you have to obey our food laws. I probably say God's food laws. But but Jesus is saying, no, that's not what corrupts a person. It's not by what they put in their mouth. It's what comes out of their heart. That's where all the evil comes from. And so these false teachers were likely calling for and living an ascetic life. The the life of a monk. Where we're going to remove ourselves from everything that's pleasurable because God wouldn't want us to have any pleasure. And so we need to get rid of some of these foods that we otherwise might like. And we need to get rid of some of these activities that we other might, otherwise might like. Notice in verse 15, the second part of the verse, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their mind and their conscience are defiled. See, they can clean the outside of the cup all they want, but to the undefiled, nothing is pure. It's all corrupt. You see, their mindset is about getting the outside of the cup clean, the external conformity. But what Paul is saying is, they are rotten to the core. You see that, the second part of verse 15? Both their mind and their conscience are defiled. The key to godliness is to make sure that the inside is clean. The outside will follow. It's not the other way around. It does not work the other way. We can't put on a cloak of godliness. We cannot put uh, on a, a... a cloak of of good works and then hope that it changes us inside. 
the irony of their pursuit of external conformity is that in the end, their externals fail in verse 16. They, profo- they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Isn't this interesting? Their desire is to clean the outside of the cup, but in the end, their actions actually show that they're corrupt on the inside. Just like the Pharisees who would call Corbin when it was time to help mom and dad. These teachers were trying to look all spiritual on the outside. I'm sure there were appearances of pockets, appearances of righteousness in in different places. But their external deeds actually was what exposed them. That's what they were trying to change, right? That's what they were trying to show that was really good. And in the end, that's how you can tell they're an unbeliever. Their external works don't match up with a changed heart. That's the only way that those externals will actually work. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. Jesus said it this way, that, they, that, that we will know a person by their what? By their fruit. Matthew 12:33. A true believer is not one who makes up their own man-made rules and, and obeys them in a way that actually keeps them from obeying what God has called him to do. That's, that's what a true believer does. He, he doesn't do that kind of thing. A true believer is one who abides in the vine. And the clear evidence that he is a believer is seen in his fruit. So, the question is, are we bearing fruit? Are we bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Are we persevering in the faith? A false professor is one who seems to be a Jesus follower, who springs up with apparent joy, but then the cares of this life choke him out. Or because he didn't get deep down to the root, he never produces fruit and he dies. He withers and dies like the parable of the soils in Mark 4. You see, time will reveal whether or not a person is a true Jesus follower. It's not about making a profession. That's what these guys did, right? They professed to know God, but by their deeds, they deny Him. In this case, the false teachers who were corrupt to the core would actually be worthless for the work of God. At the end of the verse, it says, worthless for any good deed. They're like fool's gold. They had this sparkle. They seemed to be very promising. But in the end, their deeds revealed that they're not one of us. That they went out from us, but they're not of us. Because if they were of us, they would have remained. So, two uh, points of application tonight. Number one, perhaps obvious. We're not called to stop all false teaching everywhere. I hope you recognize that we cannot stop all false teaching in the world, and we're not called to do that. We're not even called to stop all false teaching in our area. We don't go around to other churches and say, stop the false teaching, okay? In the name of Jesus Christ, stop it. That's not our mission. Perhaps you know some people who make it their personal mission to speak out against every wayward Facebook post. Right, or whenever says, someone says anything that's false. Do you know people like this at work or in other churches or maybe family members? 
call those kind of people contrarians, right? They always have the right answer, always trying to correct people. No matter what the circumstances is, they, they have to make it their mission to say what is right, to, to say what is true, and make sure that they're not speaking falsehood. God has not called us to stop all false teaching everywhere. If you're not sure about that, consider how Paul and Jesus handled people in the culture who spoke falsehood. I mean, did they address every single person and call them to account? I mean, I can think of some examples where Jesus remained silent. Now, please don't hear me say that we should just wave the white white flag and never engage with our culture. Well, that's not my job. I heard them say that about abortion or whatever other issue, and I'm not going to even say anything. And so we cower and say nothing. But my point is that we're not called to stop all the false teaching in the world. We're not commanded to go out into the world and make them think like us. So let me say it this way. You're not going to win people to Christ by first winning them to your political views. You're not going to win people to Christ by first winning them to your views on vaccination because you think they're biblically centered or your views on nutrition. Is that how you came to Christ? Did you first adopt the, the mindset of all these controversial types issues of the person who gave you the gospel? Is that how you came to Christ? Did you adopt a Christian worldview with regard to everything? Or, or has God allowed you to see the power of the gospel, the glory of the gospel, accept it as truth, and then over time start to change some of your thinking? And recognize that there are areas that we can disagree on, right? I mean, we have members in this church, we disagree on a number of things that are not essential to the gospel, but we're confident in the gospel. We don't, don't disagree on that. So, so my point is that, that our job, and, and this is driving to the greater point of the passage, our job is not to go in and change the culture, Okay? Uh, that is, by, by changing them to our views on whatever topic it is. Our job is to change the culture by sharing with them the gospel. Let God do the work of change. And that leads us to our second point, and that is, we are called to stop false teaching in our church. So, we may not be as compelled to go down the street to you know, this or that church who's teaching some kind of different form of baptism or some even different form of the gospel. But I can assure you that there's false teaching in this church. Many people will rise up against it, including myself. And that is false teaching from outside of our congregation or from inside. Our job is to stop them. False teachers must be silenced. We might rather adopt the mindset of our culture, which is to do what? Just tolerate, right? Just tolerate them. Everybody has their own voice, right? Everyone has their own opinion. We can at least let them talk. Can I say on the authority of the Bible that we must not let them talk? We must not let them have their voice. Instead, we must expose their false teaching so that other people are not drawn away. And I'm thankful for a faithful church like Ambassador Baptist that has stood up to false teachers. 
and has shut them down over the decades, opposed them to their face. Like what Paul did with Peter. Peter, an apostle, who was exalting Jewish standards over the gospel in Galatians 2, right? And Paul says, I opposed him to his face. And I, I know of specific examples in our church's history when false teachers made themselves their own platform for speaking falsehood and in the process were upsetting whole families. And I'm thankful for faithful leaders in this church and faithful members who did not allow it. They held their ground. And they leaned hard on the truth of the gospel. And it's on many of those people's shoulders that we stand. Because it's only a matter of time if we allow false teachers to continue to teach that they start to draw people away. They start to turn people away from the faith. And then because of the nature of our, our um, governance at our church, when you have people who are listening and loving false teaching, then they end up choosing false teachers to lead them down the road. So the next pastor becomes someone who is going to just tickle their ears, right? This is a serious matter. And so we need to take it seriously as Paul calls Timothy to do. Remember, when we looked at this, uh, at the beginning, a couple of weeks ago, I said that this letter is written to Titus. I, I said Timothy, but to Titus. And yet, he says at the end, the very last verse, all who are with me greet you, you all, really. Grace be with you all. So he's saying, all of you need to be reading this, even though I'm sending it directly to Titus. This is directly applicable to Titus, but I want you all to be kind of looking over Titus's shoulder so you know what, what kind of things that, that God is looking for and what kind of things the Spirit uses to bring about unity and sound teaching. One of those things is godly leaders who are willing to stand up against the false teaching that may, that may infiltrate even our church. So we need to guard ourselves against it. Any questions or comments?